When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Book Riot Podcast. It's a work. It's a it's a it's a news and talk show, Rebecca, about what's it new, is. cool. We're talking about in the world of books and reading. This week we have things that are not new or cool, but are worth talking about. Sadly, it's kind of a mm-hmm. sad episode of the Book Riot Podcast. Here, um, I'm Jeff O'Neill. She's Rebecca Shinsky. We're recording today, which is Thursday, April first, twenty twenty one. You and I. Maybe the two biggest anti-fans of April <laughs> Fool's, I think, out there. Maybe Michelle's not on the podcast. Michelle got, a, got on here. Yeah. April Fool is inimical to everything that Michelle stands for in a lot of ways. I don't, I know I don't talk about her personality, but if I can give you one sentence description is, imagine the person who appreciates April Fool the least, and uh, you will get a sense of her and uh, basically a cookie fortune version of describing her, I think. Yeah, we are definitely on the team of people yeah, who do not appreciate right. April Fools. And she might be the Joan of Arc carrying the banner, but we're we're right there with our little French swords trying to die for the cause. Absolutely. Yeah. And especially after the last year that we've all experienced, I don't need any performative no. jokes that are never that funny anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Can yeah. we just not? Like, the only one that I've tolerated today is one of the dog accounts I follow on Instagram, because that's where we are in the world, (laughs) featured a silver retriever, which was, you know, just a golden retriever, I think probably photoshopped to look silver. And because it was early in the morning and I had forgotten it was April 1st, I had a moment of like, huh, I wonder what the genetic situation (laughs) is there that made him silver. And I was like, wait. (laughs) Yeah, I can't get too bent out of shape about dog Instagram accounts playing some right. games because we're not, you know, we're not looking for we're not that's looking exactly, for world geopolitical info here. We're right, not that's exactly for, uh, the level of gentleness yeah. I'm willing to tolerate from an April Fool's joke. Give me a cute dog. Tell mm-hmm. me that something that didn't harm it turned it silver, and then reassure me that actually the dog is fine. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to get into having to give our brief farewells to Beverly Cleary and Larry McMurtry here um, in a minute. We'll spend some time uh, talking about that. But first, um, let's do a sponsor break. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Your brain needs support and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I don't want to be so narcissistic as to sort of do the pantomime of, oh, look, we mentioned Beverly Cleary and now she's passed away. Um, I think the truth is most of the people that heard us talking about Beverly Cleary last week were surprised to hear that she was alive at the ripe mm-hmm. old age of 104. And now, unfortunately, it just so happened that the week after we talked about Beverly Cleary and how she was still alive, and I think that was brought up in the context of um, adaptations, right? Was, you know, why yes. hasn't there been a Romona or uh, Henry oh, Higgins the- or... The updating of the text of right. things. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and I had said at that point that we kind of turned off the Ramona books um, because, you know, they were of their time and they were progressive for their time, which I do want to talk about here for a minute and had turned instead to find, and you know, the Vanderbeekers of 141st Street series by Karina Younglazer, friend of the show, friend of Book Riot. Um, we just read all four of those out loud together. And I think it captures a lot of what a lot of people liked about the Ramona books. Um, and then Renee Watson's um, uh, Ways to Make Sunshine, uh, which is overtly a 
up, not updated of Ramona itself, but like doing what Ramona was trying to do for Portland, Oregon, for that age group. But the writer and the main characters are black, mm-hmm. and it has just different valences that Cleary herself, of course, didn't have access to as as a white woman, but also wasn't in the zeitgeist of the thing to care about, to which is wrong and bad, but also was of its time. But it's also hard, I think, now to remember. Well, you, you wouldn't remember because we weren't alive to appreciate, I guess. How progressive the Ramona books really were when you think about it. I, I was I was doing some flipping through and reading about Cleary. She's here. She lived here in Portland. There's Ramona's statue here, you know, in Grant Park uh, um, next to the street where it's a real street, but also where Ramona and Beezus and her family lived. You know, my kids when they did things, they went to the <laughs> Beverly Cleary Elementary School for summer camp. Like it's all over the place here. But how radical it was in its own way to tell stories for eight-year-old girls, about eight-year-old girls, that let them be eight-year-old girls. You know, Ramona was, you know, it's called Ramona the Pest. Like, she was a pest, but also you identified with her. She got mad. Her parents struggled with things. She had an interiority which was intended to be related to by other eight-year-olds, which at the time, and it even now feels almost radical in its own way, to let girls have this sort mm-hmm. of experience of seeing and being, you don't have to have a superpower, you don't have to have violet eyes and lead the revolution anywhere. You're just eight years old trying to figure out how to be eight years old in a world. And that part of it was revolutionary. And I think it's so easy to forget that now. I mean, Dr. Seuss, whatever, like, great, words are fun, reading is great. But it has no message. The message did have, turns out, a lot of them we don't want to say, so we put those on the shelf. The message here was like, you as a young child are complicated. You have an inner life, and it's worth exploring. It's worth writing about. It's worth having you see yourself in the world. And that part still remains important work, Rebecca. And I, and I, mm-hmm. I, I just appreciate it now, and I... And I, in a way, I didn't really before because I grew up reading these books, right? I grew, I loved the Ramona books when I was eight years old, um, and were in, uh, and in a lot of ways an entry to me to other kinds of readings, but also held up as being important to me. And we saw an outpouring online about people. A lot of people had formative reading experiences. I, I think, especially girls mm-hmm. um, of of many different stripes and origins, saw themselves, saw them at all in books and reading in a way that just didn't exist in nineteen. 19- before the Ramona books came out. So I, I do, as much as, you know, Cleary was writing into her 90s, like she's only been sort of mm-hmm. retired for 10 years, which is remarkable. But it is helpful to remind ourselves that these things haven't been this way. It might feel like Beverly Cleary and the Ramona books are like in the firmament, like they're up there with the Iliad and like Great Gatsby or Mark Twain, but they're not. Like they were radical for their time. Um, in a lot of ways, I think that memory is really important to, 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 to pay homage to in its own way. Yeah, I think so. You know, I'm, I think I was in the first generation of young girls where these books were just available by yeah, the time yeah. I was old enough to read them. You know, I was born in 1982. And by the time I was eight, I had read all the Ramona books. Mm-hmm. I had the boxed set, you know, sitting on my little desk in my bedroom. And I, while at this point, I don't remember the particulars of the book, I do remember that I read them over and over and I loved them. And it was certainly part of my development as a person who came to love books and the ways that they opened up the way that I could understand myself and my place in the world. And that's a completely different experience when you get to see a character mm-hmm. who's like yourself and represents your, you know, something about your identity on the page. And not all of the books and series were about boys still by the time I was a kid. No. You know, like we, but I did get a lot of like boxcar children and all that stuff that mm-hmm. was or hardy boys. Um, but there was a good dose of like Nancy Drew and we had the Babysitter's Club. And I think for that time period, the girls on the pages there had a lot of autonomy and they were making a lot of choices about their lives and like certainly the updating of that for the Mm. Netflix show is really powerful but to have this conversation I'm glad to see the conversation about Beverly Cleary going the way that I've seen it going so far in the acknowledgement that you can be both radical in your time and then ultimately become outdated and that's Mm. sort of that's that's almost the ideal journey like anybody who's going (laughs) to be the leading edge of a particular generation is almost by definition not going to lead the next revolution or the next generation someone in the next generation is going to emerge to do that who grew up with the kinds of values that you helped create for Mm -hmm. for the ones down and it's really nice to see the kinds of writers like you're talking about, like Karina Younglaser, 
being able to stand on Beverly Cleary's shoulders and, you know, move up to move us forward into the next round, the next way of telling these kinds of stories and putting young girls on the page, putting, I think the next wave of this will be hopefully like a really popular series with a non-binary character or a trans character who's in the same middle grade range when you're really starting to understand yourself. And watching that evolution is going to be fascinating. And Beverly Cleary did a lot of the work that laid the path for this to keep happening in books. Yeah, a trailblazer. And it's, it's mm-hmm. as, as someone who studied capital L literature for much of my adult life, I think children's writers get short shrift. They just oh, do totally. um, in this regard. And they become, they become almost thought of as like wool sweaters of like fuzzy and harmless and, you know, maybe cloying in its own way. But at the time, I think that was all part of the art of mm-hmm. of what Cleary did was to bring something that was outside of the pale of literary representation and make it central. I mean, I think middle grade books, you don't get the Babysitter's Club without without the Ramona Absolutely. books. You don't get Judy Bloom without the Ramona books. Um, maybe you get them eventually. You know, there's one of those things like, was it just a matter of time? I don't know. You can't A-B test the universe. But if someone was going to do it, Beverly Cleary did it. And her own biography is so interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we mentioned on the last show that she was a children's librarian and really found herself, you know, scratching her head about books that would be good fits that, you know, was expressing what her children's and pat- her, her kid patrons were looking for. And so she went out and did the Morrison thing of write the book you want to see in the world, mm-hmm. right? Um, long before Morrison was was um, writing novels herself, Um and so I think I think it's one of those it's one of those things that's going to be weird in thirty years to say I was alive at the same time Beverly <laughs> Cleary was alive. Right, it becomes such a you know in the canon of American book culture, Cleary is way up there and didn't get talked about enough because when you're forty or thirty five or twenty five, you're not going to go back and read Cleary. There's not a lot for you there when you're older, which is fine. That's no mm-hmm. demerit. On Cleary, it's more of a demerit on our paucity of remembering the people that um, were so important. Um, yeah, I, I don't know the history of middle grade writing well enough off the top of my head. Maybe there were harbingers that were before Cleary in the 40s or something like that into the 50s. I don't know. Um, but my sense of it is a, as a lay person, a lay follower of this sort of thing is like pretty much it was it's it's i feel like it's a before beverly cleary and an after when it comes mm-hmm. to middle grade books and rep- the interior like that the that the characters themselves could be complicated for kids is i hadn't thought about that in those terms yeah. before until i was thinking about it this week it's interesting um so if you, there's a whole bunch of stuff out there about cleary this week if you find one that you particularly like i i'm i've been reading them all that i can get my hands on i don't have one to recommend versus all the others but podcast at bookriot.com um I almost got on my old uh, the Multnomah County Library JSTOR account and looked up some academic scholarship on Cleary. I know, I know, I'm really down around the bend when I'm like, how do we get into the JSTOR part of Multnomah County? But um, I'm not quite there yet. But uh, I'm on the cusp of that kind of a deep dive. Oh, um, the nerdiest kind of... of fugue states. I, I know. That's right. <laughs> what academic journals can I access at 9:40 at night? <laughs> So I'm not sure what else there is to say at this point. Really, I I almost went to go to the Ramona statue and take pictures of people leaving flowers, right? Kind of moving oh, stuff. That's beautiful. Its own way. Um, all right. The other farewell, I know less well. I I have, uh, like a lot of people, my one McMurtry experience is Lonesome Dove, and what an experience it is to read Lonesome Dove. Who who passed? Larry McMurtry passed away this this um, year at the age of, or this year, this week at the age <laughs> of eighty four kind of in the same vein for me with Cleary of like, oh yeah, they feel, those are, they were people of generations not too distant from mine, but still before my generation. So they might as well be like Louis L'Amour or, you know, Mark Twain mm-hmm. for McMurtry. But it very, I, I, I got into the McMurtry verse this week, an interesting guy in his own. Are you a lonesome dove person? I know our friend uh, and coworker Jen Northington is a huge lonesome dumb, d- d- lonesome dumb Freudian slip. That's me, lonesome dove fan. But do you have any McMurtry feels, Rebecca, to c- I, convey at this moment? I don't. I think when the, when Jen first like conveyed to me how much she loves lonesome dove, I had to Google Larry McMurtry. This yeah. was years ago, like a decade right. ago, when Jen and I first became friends, and was 
I was like, oh, he's still alive. Mm -hmm. And that happened to me a couple of times in the intervening years. So I was like, wait, is Larry McMurtry still doing things? Um, So I I had sort of always... In in my in the length of my awareness of him, I sort of always conceived of him as like a literary figure of the past already. It never right. felt to me exactly. like I was living. That's in exactly the time that's of, exactly right. Yeah, yeah. I never felt like I was living in the time of Larry McMurtry doing things. Um, but Lonesome Dove has been one of those big books that I've intended to get to forever. I think that is a that's a book experience I want to have. I want to be like able to have that conversation with people and be on the inside of that. People seem yeah. to really uh, value it and i'm curious about what's going on there but it I would don't be have... a worthy read along i mean it would be a re- worthy book for us to consider just i know we we could get jen involved it's an epic it's an american epic and i think mcmurtry's canon even in my own mind i'll speak for myself i like read i read lonesome dove there are subsequent books that are part of the series i don't know if they're good i don't know what they're mm-hmm. about i just sort of stopped there I feel like Cormac McCarthy kind of blew up McMurtry's spot. A, you get the MC, but he just did... It's like bringing Tarantino to the plains, or (laughs) or I guess McCarthy was doing Tarantino stuff before Tarantino was doing... I don't know if... I wonder if Tarantino ever read Cormac McCarthy, but a more violent, darker... Actually, it's more like bringing Faulkner to the West, I think is what maybe McCarthy was doing to some degrees, especially in the earlier stuff. But I think in comparison, McMurtry can seem dowdy, sentimental, um, romantic in a way that McCarthy really isn't. And it, McCarthy felt more modern. And I think part of what McMurtry is trying to do in Lonesome Dove is to tell a more modern but also sweeping epic. Like it's a between. It's not doing like... It's not doing like um, uh, what's a Bret Hart romanticizations of the West, mm-hmm. but it's also not McCarthy's like grim and gritty and uh, you know Tommy Lee Jones looking at the camera and saying like boy I guess this sucks doesn't it like that kind of that kind of a move too so I, it's neither fish nor fowl like a penguin really when you think about it <laughs> um, sort of caught between two worlds and I think probably. A lot of people I know, I've heard a lot of people who are surprised at how great Lonesome Dove is, because I think it gets thrown into the basket with Louis L'Amour stuff, and it's not fair to Lonesome Dove. It just isn't. It's really wonderful. It's really great. <laughs> I think you would really like it, actually, Rebecca. I think you would really dig it. I think you'd be... It's hard to say. It, this is one of those things you can't really do to someone say, I think you're going to be surprised about how much you like it, because that's a bar that, as soon as you mm. clear it, raises, right? Because you said I was going to like yeah. it more than I did. Um, but, but I'll be I'd, glad I'd be that interested. I did it. Yeah, I think that's right. It's really long. I mean, it's 864 pages in paperback. It is a long, it's a lot of lonesome and a lot of dove um, <laughs> to be. Even the title feels kind of cheesy, I have to say. You know, it does. It does feel kind of cheesy. Like, yeah. I think that I'll, I get into that mode like in August when there's nothing to do but Perfect summer, still. hot Virginia read. You got to be, yep. you got to be really uncomfortable from the heat to really get the full thing here. Yeah. And even if um, I only read 30 pages of it a day, I could get through that in a month. So. Yeah. So Maybe it's, I'll do it. it's for languid, languid summer days. Um, mm-hmm. Cause it's, it, there's more hor- there's more violence. I think even saying you're going to be surprised by it won't fully prepare you for how much you're going to find it interesting. I think that's fair to say yeah. at this point. I uh, also have basically zero experience with Westerns at all. So this oh. feels like the appropriate way to just like jump all the way into the deep end. of the Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the modern Western and the other thing that Lonesome Dove ain't that old. It's like 1985. Right, like if you'd asked me, I would have been like, oh, probably 58. Yeah, 58, 1941, something like that. Like it's just after Steinbeck, you know, something right, like exactly. that. Right, exactly. That is where it lives in my imagination. Right, yeah. But yeah, the 20th, 25th anniversary edition came out in 20, 2010. Um, so we're in the 36th year of Lonesome Dove. Um, and McMurtry has a huge biography, 29 novels, won the Pulitzer for Lonesome Dove, I think another thing that is true is that the things McMurtry cares about are less important to the wider literary discourse now. There's mm-hmm. a couple of two old cowboys getting up to one last adventure. <laughs> old white dudes from Texas doing white dude from Texas things. It's not the most zeitgeisty sentence I could say in the world right now. 
Um, Are they getting the band back together, though? It's one last adventure. All right. It's two well, cowboys is basically a band. That's the it's a, two dudes yeah. is the band of cowboys. But like also the last picture show. Yeah, I, I wonder if at some point there will be a a McMurtryizance McConaissance we had with Matthew McConaughey. Can we get them? Um, there's so many books, and some of them you've heard of them, some of you mm-hmm. haven't. Also, you know, Terms of Endearment is a Larry McMurtry novel, man. I could not have told you that for a million dollars. I mean, talk about you could knock me over with a, a cow prod. Um, <laughs> I mean, really, you probably could just trying with a cow prod. I that's think not that's really the much point. of a metaphor. <laughs> Do you, you're not supposed to knock them over. You're supposed to get them moving, little doggy. Um, the cows are a lot bigger than you, Jeff. I'm trying to think of like. If there's a someone who's younger that's extant, like that's still writing, I feel like there's a world in which McMurtry is the um, oh one. It's your boy. Oh, I'm forgetting the name. This is so bad. Oh no! Come on, make make more words. Help uh, me. he wrote World According to Garp. Who is it? Oh, John Irving. John Irving of the West. Mm, interesting. And John Irving, I know you like a John Irving. Kind of has been passed by. The world yeah. of writing and books has kind of passed well, by. I'm a little afraid that John Irving wouldn't hold up under 2021 scrutiny. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm saying. Right. That's what I'm saying. And also, I don't think he's particularly interested in holding up under 2021 scrutiny. You write 40 which is a whole novels or whatever, you're kind of, you get put out to pasture. You get to decide you know? you're done. Yeah. Right. You get to decide you're done. Well, um, maybe like come August, we will do like Rebecca's Great Lonesome Dove read along. <laughs> I mean, we're going to need a whole podcast. You know, it's going to be a whole thing. <laughs> Great. We've Plenty bandied time. about a separate feed called like the close read, right? Where we really mm-hmm. get into these sorts of things. Um, may- maybe it's someday. We- this would be a really, g- this would be maybe, this would be a stress test on the idea. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I was going to say you, me, and three <laughs> listeners. <laughs> also, how was Terms of Endearment 420 pages? How in the world? So fare thee well to Larry McMurtry. I think I would, I'm safely calling underrated now. Mm, okay. I think that's fair. I mean, of course I do. I said it. I'm, I trust you that I will enjoy my Lonesome Dove experience. No one thinks happens. of Terms of Endearment as like, boy, what a great Larry McMurtry adaptation that was. That's Which I true. think is kind of Larry McMurtry in a nutshell. Like, I think that, that's maybe the Larry McMurtry uh, legacy right now is... Wow, I didn't know that was so good, or B, they wrote that. There's not much, like, myth about Larry McMurtry himself. No, in no the there's not. Current literary You like books? Had a big bookstore? Yeah. His, his memoir was called Books. I do remember that book, yeah. yeah. And now that I'm thinking about it, I wonder if that's part of Cormac McCarthy sort yeah, of ascending himself to the throne. Yeah, yeah it was not just... That once you bring Tarantino to the plains, it's hard for anybody to stand mm-hmm. up to that. But there is sort of a cult of personality situation, or at one point there was around McCarthy. Yeah. And it didn't seem like Larry McMurtry had any interest in that at all. Not out there mixing it up on Twitter yeah. or at you know, <laughs> press shows. Oh my God. The author of Terms of Endearment mixing it up on Twitter is just like an image I was unprepared for. Well, today. listen. Stephen King's out there. Do you want the the author of Misery? I mean, that's what you get. <laughs> you kind of do, though. Well, do I guess I don't know. No, I mean I don't want anything on Twitter. So oh right, I'm... that's right. But there's a world in which Stephen King is still Stephen Kinging it and not like a public figure, and that's, that's true. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a very plausible um, world. I'm just trying to see if there's anything. Else. There's so many of these books. I he's. Tr- a lot of westerns, for sure, but also not like Last Picture Show, Terms of Endearment. These are literary fiction about middle-aged white people of middle to upper middle class, unless you're a cowboy, mm-hmm. you know. But a wonderful writer of sentences, a wonderful—I don't. This is not a word. Evocateur. I'm just co- a coin. That something. should be a word. If you do, can you like be a that provocateur? One? You should definitely be. He's able to an, be an evocateur, evocateur where. Tone and setting and feeling, ambiance. You know, we, we could make our list, our top five evocateurs. I'm putting Marilyn Robinson up there. Um, I'm putting our, our, our fella Colson up there. Yes, yes. Um, Jasmine Ward, evocateurs. 
Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, Horseman. Some of these names, like, I feel like some of these names would be good inputs for an AI that produces Western titles. <laughs> Lonesome Dove, Lonesome Horseman Pass By, Leaving Cheyenne, The Streets of Laredo, Comanche Moon. Um, yeah. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you really could remix those into. Yeah, your a your whole bunch of your Larry titles. McMurtry title is the state your grandparents are from plus the most recent weather event you can remember. So mine oh. would be um, Kansas Rain by Larry mm-hmm. McMurtry. How's this one, Georgia Sunrise? I mean, let it's gold, Jerry. This farewell Larry McMurtry moment has taken a turn, but I'm into it. The Last Kind Word Saloon is an actual title of a Larry <laughs> Texasville, Cadillac Jack, Sin Killer, <laughs> Dwayne's Depressed, literally what? is a Larry McMurtry book. <laughs> the Wandering Hill by Sorrows River. Wow. Is Larry McMurtry, was he okay? Rhino Ranch, Crazy Horse, A Life, Somebody's Darling, Boone's Lick, <laughs> Roads, colon, <laughs> <laughs> Driving America's Great Highways, Desert Rose, Buffalo Girls, Oh, What a Slaughter, <laughs> Massacres in the American West, 1846 to 1890. Is it Oh, What a Slaughter? Oh, what or was a the terrible slaughter. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Oh, what a slaughter feels like the name of one of the murals in the Pawnee's uh, City <laughs> Hall. Does. Where the closer you get to it, the more horrifying The more horrifying it is. It is. The atrocities are in blue. <laughs> and but just he, blue. But McMur- McMurtry, to his credit, or at least the very uh, table stakes of like, he thought about this stuff, right? The, mm-hmm. the, the, the violent history of the American West and like what was, what had to happen or what did happen, what people did to create, quote unquote, the Texas cowboy ranch, the West as we know it is part of what's going on here. So I I think all of this goes into how McMurtry, in his own way, reminds me of Michener, at his height, was thought of like the figure of American letters. Mm -hmm. And now it's like, eh, Lonesome Dove's pretty good. (laughs) That's where we are. (laughs) I'm interested if listeners would read along lonesome dove with me yeah. if we did that this summer would you actually do it you know you know. I, you know i noticed there you didn't even ask if i will because you know i will do that shit oh i know i know it's I can not even like, not even tomorrow. taken we don't have to be a podcast <laughs> right we call it wednesday if, mornings i'm sure that if i were like jeff please book club lonesome dove with me well we're starting in the morning we're going to talk about it for an hour but is it day. long enough rebecca something <laughs> longer what we're going to do instead, we're, we're going to talk about 30 pages a day for 30 days. Yeah. <laughs> Hello and welcome. I don't even mind that 864 pages, frankly, I don't think there's any format of print book that is easy to read at that length. I don't care if it's paperback, no. mass market, hardcover, they're all a mess. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, another, that's another question. All right, let's do a sponsor and we'll get back to news, news. Fairly well, Larry McMurtry. Thank you so much. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. For all of your efforts. Your efforts succeeded. Yes, I believe they did. All right, news, news. Really the big, I, I kind of put it in there almost as an after, afterthought because there's not much to say out of it, but the big book news of the week mm-hmm. is further consolidation in the world of books and reading, this time yes. in the form of HarperCollins buying 
the trade assets of HMH, that means basically the stuff you and I would care about and people listening <laughs> to the show. HMH has a really big educational business um, and a trade asset business, which in the firmament of publishing is not that big. The, the transaction is for $349 million, which is just a little under two times um, H HMH's sales. But it does. I think it's a good fit. We talked about this as a consolation prize for whoever mm -hmm. didn't buy Simon and Schuster, and we I think we said explicitly on the show. Did we say Harper Collins? Whoever doesn't get I think Simon and Schuster will probably get the HMA trade assets. Yeah. Um, the real cherry here is the rights to the Tolkien um, corpus, which for those of you who don't know, includes Lord of the Rings. And there's a little thing you may have heard of coming up called a $1 billion Amazon adaptation of Lord of the uh -huh. Rings stuff. Uh -huh. And it was announced also this week. It didn't make it into the show. It wouldn't have made it on the show by itself, but um, there's going to be a new Lord of the Rings edition. It's like number 50 new Lord. But this one for the first time with Tolkien's own illustrations. Oh, I have Which is interesting. It's interesting it as a packaging. Let me just tell you, I'm not holding out. Having no. seen Tolkien's illustrations... <laughs> It'll make a wonderful gift item. <laughs> it, for for completists, completionists, yeah. it will be interesting there. But I think that's coming with the explicit purpose of being with the adaptation coming out, which I believe is the fall. I think we're supposed to get oh. this in the fall. Wow. We don't know how many episodes. It's Amazon is doing it. It's on Amazon Prime. It's their play to have a Game of the uh, Game mm -hmm. of the Roads. I don't know what that was. <laughs> wow. Game of Game of Thrones tentpole. <laughs> Mm -hmm. People get Amazon Prime so that they sign up to watch. This is the, this Lord is the, of the weird Rings thing that's like set way, way before. Way, way before. In the, the Atlantis Lord of, of Middle Earth that doesn't right. exist. Okay. Again, I, I will I watch both, this, but I, I don't know how to care about it. I had both forgotten about it and then also just assumed that all TV that was supposed to come out this fall is now delayed until like 2025. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. I don't know. I don't know. Especially anything with that much production. But yeah. Who, yeah. I think I will let you watch it and tell me about it. You're going to hear about it from the I'm internet, ready. I think. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's just going to be a thing that's out there in the world um, in a big way. I don't know if it'll be good. They're spending a lot of money. I'm sure it'll be beautiful, blah, blah, blah. But anyway, that's the kind of thing. I can't think. Actually, HMH, Vanderbeekers of 141st Street. I was just looking oh, at it this morning. Nice. So again, just uh, in there. Rebecca, is there anything else to say about this at this point that's not basically a um, dime store version of what we'd say about SNS being bought by PRH? Yeah, no, just further consolidation. We were speculating on the Book Riot Slack about whether... Uh, Harper Collins was trying to get this done yeah. before all of these antitrust kinds right. of hearings are happening um, or potentially will happen around PRH and Simon and & Schuster. And is that too big? Um, I don't mm -hmm. think that, I mean, given Harper Collins' size, I don't think purchase of HMH puts them in the same realm of scary size that it puts PRH, Simon Schuster altogether. Um, but it's an interesting pattern to see. And this sort of, con like this sort of consolidation writ large over time is going to have impact on yeah. publishing in some way. There's a lot of theorizing about what those impacts will be. And I don't think we have a lot of good data about really how to predict it no. yet. So I'm not, I'm, I'm not like super deep divey into all the coverage of it yet. Cause just nothing's happening yet other than speculation. Um, but it is undeniable that the industry is contracting in this way. Yeah. It's, I mean, as sales are up, interestingly that, more consolidation is also happening at the same time. Often in, in business cycles, you see consolidation when mm -hmm. things go south. Um, but I think the, the growing menace, to use Lord, Lord of the Rings language, <laughs> in the West, in this part, in the sort of the Amazon, is precipitating a lot of this, is that, you know, PRH is saddling up for whatever, mm -hmm. even if just to yeah. stay in the saddle. And I think that means the second tier players also are like, we better get in our, we better get on the horses here and make sure for whatever's coming, we're as strong as we can. We have as much cloud as we can, have as mm -hmm. many titles as we can. We have as many tentpole things as we can just to fortify ourselves from whatever could happen down the road. Um, but that big, I think you're right, that big, that big war, that battle, the battle of the five armies in the Hobbit or the battle of mm -hmm. Minas Tirith. What is that going to be about? Is that ever going to happen? Or is it just, we? it could happen, so we need to have standing armies? I, I think we're both yeah, kind of wondering is, about that. Looks uh, like. That's the question I would love to put to like the top executives yeah. at these publishers. Is like, what 
is the big scary that mm-hmm. Amazon could do that you're really shoring up for? Because I, I understand and in, in many ways agree with the sense that there is a big scary building, like a, a bad thing is building in the East. And Amazon certainly has a lot of power. Mm-hmm. I would love to see the conversation shift to something that's more proactive and empowered on the part of publishers to like, well, if we're consolidating and we're getting all of this stuff under Mm -hmm. one roof, we have all of these titles, that's more firepower against Amazon. Maybe now is the moment for us to do something. Right. Um, And publishers, I think, are just perpetually in the place of being afraid that Amazon's going to get mad about something and like take their buy buttons away. And I would just love to see a publisher be like, you know what? We don't want your buy buttons. We have come up with something else. And there's so much money and so many resources and so many smart people doing things in the industry that I hope it is possible for that kind of thinking to be going on. And for someone or the somebody, some group of people in one of these companies to like get brave enough to take the risk of upsetting Amazon enough to do the thing and try to get out ahead of it instead of just perpetually being in this defensive. Yeah. And that's, I think that's the way of thinking about it is like, there's a world in which this is all always forever defensive, right? That Mm -hmm. is, it's sort of a, it's a arms race, like a nuclear arms race situation, which, well, we need nukes just so they don't use theirs. That's the point of our nukes. We don't want to use them. We really don't. We don't want them to use them, but it makes it a hell of a lot less likely they're going to use theirs if we have some new, we can inflict some pain uh, on our side as well. Or is it more of like a tectonic model where there is tension building and it will break at some point and we're just waiting for that to happen? I think either, maybe both and of those are possible mm. scenarios, right? Where, yeah. you know, earth the, along fault lines, they can build up for a long time and never have the big, you know, 8.4 Richter scale thing. A lot of shocks and it goes away and that kind of dissembles it. So, I would get my guess right now from the messaging we've seen around publishing is they don't have a proactive move that they like. And so all of this is so that they do have an alternative if Amazon decides one day to press a big red button that does X. But we don't even know what that X is. Right. That's the big mystery is what's the X. Why is Amazon, they're going to pull their books? They're going to pull the books people buy? They're going to say we need all of the money from a book sale? Like where, what is a mm-hmm. possible future that's meaningfully worse than it is right now that would precipitate unusual action at this point? I just don't have a good sense of it at all. I don't have any sense yeah. of what that is. Well, I think there are some reasons also to be hopeful that the next four years, possibly the next eight years, mm. will be very transformative about Amazon's, what Amazon can get away with. Yeah. Um, you know, we're looking at the the vote was held earlier this week in Bessemer, Alabama, over unionizing for Amazon employees. They're counting the votes still. So maybe we will know next week how that has shaken out. Um, the Biden administration is much friendlier to restricting big tech, uh, of which Amazon is certainly a part, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, than, and to looking at the regulation of big tech than the previous administration was. And there's a lot that could happen. This intersection of workers' rights, raising the minimum wage and improving working conditions, which I I understand that Amazon's warehouse, at least the one in Bessemer, has a $15 minimum wage. So they're already doing that, that the um, proposed minimum ra- minimum wage raise for the, like federal minimum wage would accomplish. But there's a lot that could shift given this administration's focus on improving the situation for workers, improving safety, and looking at what is a sensible way to approach regulating technology and trade that happens online. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I think it, it could be transformative. Who knows how far they will get with that or which of those efforts will succeed. But it's possible that Amazon will be a smaller scary giant or that the ways in which it's scary will be diminished over the next four or eight years. And I hope that at some point, publisher, like part of me is just a little worried that there's not actually an X, that it's just Amazon looming because it knows that it can loom. And like, well, someday we're going to press 
a big red button that does mm-hmm. X and they haven't defined what the X is. And maybe the publishers don't have a sense of what it is either. It's just Amazon could do something bad. And so we should be ready for this undefined bad thing. Right. And I would just really love to see the industry get out in front of that. Well, and one of the side effects of this inaction is related to another story where mm-hmm. in Publishers Weekly, um, a lawsuit is being brought against Amazon and the Big Five, not because of ebooks this time, just because of anti-competitive um, activity in the print market. Mm-hmm. Um, same law firm that brought the ebook one. The lead plaintiff here is a small bookstore in. Um, uh, oh, I just lost it here. Uh, <laughs> Somewhere in the Midwest. Yeah, Evanston. Sorry, it's Evanston, <laughs> Illinois. Yes, Evanston, Illinois. It's called um, Bookings and Beginnings. There you go. Yeah, Bookings and Beginnings. Um, is the initial plaintiff on behalf of a potential class of booksellers. The complaint states, the big five agreed to anti-competitive restraints that prevent plaintiff and other booksellers from competing with Amazon. Mm-hmm. Uh, the complaint states alleging that Amazon's contracts with publishers cover practically all potential avenues of competing bookseller may attempt to use in order to differentiate itself from Amazon. I read this pretty closely. I didn't see any specifics here that I could understand. Rebecca, did mm-hmm. you um, at this point? I I don't doubt that there could be a reasonable case to be made. But I think what's interesting to me is that n- now it's not publishers versus Amazon. They're getting lumped in with Amazon mm-hmm. in both of these suits. And I think that kind of like nuclear detente we were talking about leads itself to thinking about, well, Russia and America just want to control the world. They're the ones with all the nukes, and we're just sitting around. And they're actually the ones, they say they're pointing at each other, but they have them and we don't. Um, So that's interesting as well. Yeah, well, there's, I think there's a way in which Amazon controls a lot of the decisions that publishers make by virtue of of perpetually looming or, you know, the the perpetual threat that Mm -hmm. they will just do some undefined thing. And by bowing to those threats publishers find themselves aligned with amazon not intentionally but when you say i'm going to do what you ask me to do because i'm afraid of you or i'm not going to do this thing i really want to do because you might get mad at me you end up on the same team yeah <laughs> like not with the same intentions but you end up doing taking the same actions or similar actions that have similar consequences and one of the things that this points to is that by kowtowing so much to Amazon, publishers have put themselves in a position where they can be accused of being in bed with Amazon and preventing independent booksellers from having the same kinds of access to compete in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, let me read this paragraph. I should say this is Publishers Weekly. Link in the show notes this is Andrew Albanese, I believe he says, how is, says mm-hmm. his name. Um, here's a quotation from the claim. Defendant Amazon participated in and facilitated the horizontal agreement among the big five defendants by coordinating, coordinating a series of substantially identical agreements with the same anti-competitive terms and making clear to each of the big five defendants that it was offering each of them a similar deal. The purpose and effect of these agreements is to ensure that defendants control trade wholesale prices for print trade books, and then Amazon faces no competition from other online booksellers. Barnes & Noble is just like sitting over there going, oh my God, what mm-hmm. shade. Um, <laughs> so I think in layman's terms, basically, Amazon's offering them a special deal Mm-hmm. to do deals with Amazon and that they're substantially identical so they're not competing with each other for better Amazon terms competing with each other and that those deals are not extended to non-Amazon sellers mm-hmm. ergo anti anti-competitive. Yep. Okay. I guess it's possible if you're colluding to fix prices you can't do that as we learned from ebooks. Right. You can give preferential deals, right? You're not under obligation to give all customers the same prices. But if these were fixed, and then somehow that was a quid pro quo for some other kind of activity on the the publisher's part, it seems difficult to prove. The thing that gets to me about this is the independent bookstore, nominally under whose flag this is flying, they had the same deal they have now in 1988, with publishers Mm -hmm. like what's changed about the deals independent bookstores get is it different i don't know the answer that my understanding is largely the same yeah you can return the product Mm -hmm. what industry can you do that in so 
is it that they're being they're being competed against or Amazon has just figured out a different business model and they're like wait a minute the deal we agreed to that that supported our industry for 100 years is now no longer the best deal in town i don't know i don't know how do you prove damages tough to say tough to say right that that one that part of it is tough and yeah. if nothing else you know it's true what you were saying that Publishers can give preferential deals mm -hmm. to different folks. That's true. Publishing spends a lot of time paying lip service to how much they love and value independent right. booksellers. And I think that that is true in sentiment, like in the individual hearts of independent individual people who work in publishing. I think that's true that they love and value independent booksellers. Mm -hmm. The actions that publishing capital P publishing takes certainly do not point yeah. to publishing as an industry loves and values independent booksellers. And I totally get how watching Amazon get, even if it's just a preferential deal, mm -hmm. um, would feel like betrayal because of the conversation about the way that publishing supposedly sees and values independent booksellers. And it can also be true that there may be issues with the independent bookstore model that could be updated or that Amazon identified some weaknesses and then built a different kind of model that allowed them to compete right. in this other way. I think all of these things are going on, but there's certainly, I think, some validity to the feeling yes. that drives some of this or that may drive a lot of it, that independent booksellers are told that publishers are aligned with them and support them and want to see them succeed and then you have to, if you're an independent bookstore, you have to turn around and watch publishers give Amazon a preferential deal. Yeah, I think that's really hard to stomach. <laughs> the idea that we're the ones that are at a disadvantage and we, and Amazon gets a better mm -hmm. deal. Well, Amazon yeah. gets a better deal because you're at a disadvantage. It's, it's economies of scale, right? Like there are price savings and efficiencies that come along with economies of scale. It very easily tips over into monopolistic behavior. And I think that line's very hard to understand. I don't understand mm -hmm. it myself. I, I could very... I could be extremely amenable to an argument that this is a legitimate claim. I could also be amenable to the counter that actually these are competitive advantages that Amazon's built up. Um, it's not a restraint of trade, uh, you know, so on and so forth. I, I could be persuaded either way because I think it is close. At the very least, it's close to uh, having a huge advantage that you developed by having a different business model, tipping into now you're using mm -hmm. that advantage that to mm -hmm. unfairly compete because uh, yeah. then it's not competing anymore. Then it's just putting your thumb on ants right. um, to that degree. So right. I don't and know what the remedies, I saw this week that publish um, random house was extending payment terms to independent bookstores mm -hmm. by an additional mm -hmm. month, which is, I think that's one of those small things that I can be guilty of dismissing as a thing that publishers could do that would matter to independent bookstores, especially. And I, maybe there's a laundry, I'm sure there's a laundry list of things like that out there. Be curious mm -hmm. to see those things um, for sure. Yeah, it'll be interesting as this develops to see what some of the concrete examples are that come out mm -hmm. in the case um, so that we can. It does form feel like some the ABA has been asleep at the wheel in this regard, mm -hmm. which is can you not collectivize members to like negotiate a deal with the publishers? Like, it seems bizarre to me that each individual bookstore has their own relationship. This is something that you've mm -hmm. privied me to. Like, yeah. You can't privet me to. That's not a way. It's not a transitive <laughs> verb. Let's, let's go with it. Yeah, that you, you clued me into, <laughs> uh, made me privy to. I'm conflating those two. Is like how bespoke each arrangement each bookstore has with mm -hmm. the publishers um, and the wholesalers. And, so, and it does feel like as much as Bookshop has made some of that digital front consumer facing stuff simpler, and we can talk about the pros and cons of that, that each bookstore has to negotiate and decide which warehouse to get from to get which discount and how many mm -hmm. units and how many do you have to get to freight and what our terms are. It's like, can we have a standard agreement where you collectivize a thousand bookstores and they get essentially the, the Costco deal? It feels like that would be a reasonable thing to do, but I'm sure it's more complicated than that. Yeah. But, um, it can, could you scale up? Could could independent bookstores get some of the collective the benefits, benefits of scale. scaling up together yeah. um, if if they were organized in a specific way? I don't know the answer to that either. Uh, one more sponsor, and then um, we'll we'll wrap up the show. Rebecca, where do you want to wrap up this week? 
you know, I don't want to be in yeah. the mayor efforts fail corner, yeah, let's but do I it, think though. we got to we got to do this. You're right. Be. Well, actually, the first one is mayor efforts succeed this week. Scholastic books and Dov Pilkey, who's the writer of the very famous and beloved Captain Underpants series, announced that they are pulling a book from the series because it perpetuates passive racism. Uh, the book came out in 2010. We don't need to read the title on air, but it perpetuates harmful stereotypes about um, Asian people in particular um, for many reasons that are obvious in the news right now. This is a, a particular thing that folks are sensitive to and are looking at. Um, so they have decided to pull this title from publication and additionally are taking steps to inform schools and libraries who might still have it in circulation mm -hmm. of that decision um, so they're withdrawing it from publication. And I think taking the step to inform schools and libraries, hey, we're going to stop publishing this, is really an indication that they're suggesting also you might want to stop distributing this book or putting it in classrooms uh, as well. So this is, I, I guess, now in the realm of the Dr. Seuss decisions of things mm -hmm. that we are applauding. Good job canceling yourself. Um, I got curious and did some Googling just to see what conversation on the right wing Internet was about this. And it is also the same kinds of headlines. Dr. Seuss got away with it first. Like, you know, Senator mm -hmm. McCarthy is not reading the Dov Pilkey book uh, at a press conference this week. But mm -hmm. it's the similar conversation around like cancel culture gone crazy. And no, this is just people taking responsibility for having created something that's harmful and removing it from the atmosphere. So may your efforts in this succeed. It's what you Scholastic. want. It's what you love this to see. You, yeah, this is what you want. You know, I was reminded of a, like a, a similar thing earlier this week, um, listening to a podcast called The Confessional, which is hosted by Nadia Boltz Weber. And folks go on, they talk about, she calls it a car wash for your soul or a mm -hmm. car wash, like a car wash for your shame. People go on and they like tell a story about something that they've done that they regret and she's a minister and she kind of says you know she's super liberal says like let's talk about this in a real world capacity um the host the host the guest this week was joshua harris who wrote a book in the 90s called i kissed dating goodbye mm. super harmful for mm. like generations of young people about purity culture which came up also in relation to the shootings in atlanta um, and that shooters blaming of women for mm. what he considered to be sexual temptation when he killed eight people, six of them Asian American women. Uh, so he recently, like within the last couple of years, became aware of how harmful that book had been. And he stopped publication on it. Like, mm. this is what we want. Yeah. This is what we want to see. So there are takebacks. There Take, are takebacks. As, as much as you were told there weren't on the playground. There are yes. takebacks. There should be takebacks. There should be yes. takebacks. There should be takebacks. Um, I heard Michael Eric Dyson giving a podcast interview recently where he was talking about how straight up canceling someone who wants to do better mm -hmm. prevents us from holding them accountable to mm -hmm. doing better. Yeah, this car blanche to be a jerk. If I'm going to be a jerk forever by everyone yeah. labeled, why do I want to even try anymore? Yeah. And I've been thinking about that a lot, and I'm really glad to see this. I think I will be glad to see this in every iteration. Mm -hmm. And I would rather folks, like, let, like, let's catch some noise in with the signal. I would rather someone be overcautious that a thing that they have published might be harmful right. and pull it than go the other direction and risk causing harm. Mm -hmm. And it's good to see this. I think we should be seeing more of it. There's certainly like the world has changed a lot. Oh, since there are a lot of weeds in the garden. <laughs> yeah, the world has changed a lot, even just since 2010, when this Dov Pilkey book came out and it should keep changing. And if we're looking closely we should find a lot of these things um, that, and I, I hope there will be reward. Like I, I hope that the right wing got just as upset about Captain Underpants as they yeah. did about Dr. Seuss and went and bought a bunch of Captain Underpants books and rewarded Dove Pilkey mm -hmm. and rewarded Scholastic for this because this is what we want to see. Totally. In um, a quick may your efforts fail, I don't want to give this much shrift, but just enough mm -hmm. to besmirch it. Um, a new bill introduced in Tennessee. This is an article on them written by Nico Lang, be link in the show notes, um, authored by Tennessee Representative Bruce Griffey, may your efforts fail, would bar public schools, including charter schools, from 
using any books in the classrooms that, quote, promote, normalize, support, or address lesbian, gay, mm-hmm. bisexual, or transgender issues or lifestyle. This is bad. I don't think, <laughs> I think it's the worst one I've seen. Is this the worst one we've seen, the bill? Like, you can't even so. mention different identities, different sexual yeah, identities. Yeah, non hetero, non cishet, white, I'm sure, whatever. Um, I think I'm sure this they is don't the worst one that we've seen. And I was wondering, and maybe if we have librarians or historians yeah. listening, I couldn't even figure out how to Google my way to a good answer to this. Were there, like, this is truly just an attempt at erasure. Yeah. And were there, like, similar conversations in the, I don't know, in the 40s or 50s or 60s about forbidding books about black people? Oh, I don't know. Or, you know, like, or is this a new thing that we're doing with oppression? And either, either, either answer way, to that question yeah, it's, it's not, is It's awful. not the oppression Olympics, right? It's that kind of thing. But <laughs> right. have but we seen a blanket right. banning of even the mention of someone's because, identity? Right. Because we have seen a shift in, like, the, the most frequently challenged books over the last decade, even. Ten years ago, the most frequently challenged books were just books that had any kind of sex in them or yeah. books with language that was perceived as vulgar by some people. And now it has moved where the most frequently challenged books are the ones that address LGBTQ issues or that acknowledge that LGBTQ people are people in the world. Mm-hmm. And I was just wondering, trying to go, think backwards about like, okay, if this is how the shift is going, what were the previous iterations? And I wonder if what if there were any attempts in previous generations when there were previous big social movements yeah. to just completely erase mentioning of things from classrooms. And I don't know of any, and that certainly doesn't mean that they didn't exist but i i had a, an epic google failure trying to get the answer well we've <laughs> so. done this show for a long time and we cover we try to cover stories like this to bring light and heat as much as insofar as we can to let people know this stuff goes on and i don't remember one that's a, just a straight up erasure i i don't mm-hmm. i do, of of you know whether or not there's sex yeah and we've seen to get it it's out like, completely, I to mean, take it off a reading list, to take it just, off a recommend, but just to say you can't, ha- you can't have, you couldn't have it at all is, I think, a new thing know, to us that we've seen. I think it this. is, and I suspect now that I'm noodling about this out loud with another person and not just yeah. Google late at night, that a lot of this is connected to conservatives and evangelical right wing folks' belief that being queer is a thing that you can choose. And if we just don't talk to kids about it, they will never choose that thing. If I don't expose my kid to a gay book, my kid will not be gay. It's like abstinence for your soul somehow. Abstinence education for your soul. Right, which like as we've established, no book has ever turned a kid. Yeah, and and it doesn't also... And and it doesn't matter if it did. It didn't matter if it did. Right. Yeah. But that's a... It's perceived as a different kind of... trait or quality than races where I think you couldn't do but if you were I think that makes it useful if you replace LGBTQ in this example with a new bill seeks to ban classroom materials that promote normalize support or address women's issues or black Mm -hmm. issues or pick any other group that has been oppressed and slot it in there it makes it it's already patently absurd Mm -hmm. but if you're a person who is like well because LGBTQ stuff is sex adjacent. Maybe we shouldn't talk about it with kids. No, these are just people mm-hmm. who have identities like everyone else. And their whole entire identity is not about who they like to have sex with. And well, I mean, we need no, to acknowledge that. The, the other difference is that um, gender identity and sexual orientation is not a protected class. So right. you have legislative garbage room to try stuff like this. It shouldn't be that way, of course. But like... There's nine protected classes, sex, race, age, disability, color, mm-hmm. creed, national origin, religion, or genetic information, which was added in 2008. That sex one at the beginning is, I don't, it's not enough to capture what's it's not the enough. current spectrum. It's, and it yeah. gives people like this the room to do hate grandstanding for garbage constituents. And it's very bad. And it probably won't pass, but that people are even writing it is so sad and terrifying that it's yeah. almost beggars um description frankly yeah it does and you know a, a lot of the laws that have been passed that have been for the protection of lgbtq rights have been 
done under the interpretation yes. of sex as a protected class. Mm-hmm. And if you get into like reading the Supreme Court decisions about some of those things, as I occasionally have, you can see how they draw the lines to do that and you know make these decisions under existing precedent. But we need to yeah. designate sexual identity and gender orientation or sexual orientation and gender identity as as protected classes mm-hmm. um, that are unique into themselves and that don't have to be justified through judicial shenanigans for precisely this reason. Mm-hmm. So may your efforts fail. Maybe the biggest one I've given, uh, the, may your efforts fail yeah. stamp at this point. Please uh, vote if you live in Tennessee. <laughs> yeah, please, please vote. And not for this guy. No. Or his ilk. <laughs> Pay attention to who's running against him. Yeah. Rebecca, thank you so much. Um, next time is another, we're, we're, oh, not too oh. early for moms, dads, and grads recommendation. As you said at the top, and I just blew right past it. That was a good mm-hmm. note. We're getting ready. Uh, we're recording those in May sometime, I think. That's yeah, right. I think it's actually the first show of May first will be Moms, May. Dads, and Grads. So we will record it later this month. So yeah, yeah so please. You get, it's time. It's it's not even too early. It's yeah. on time. Not even, it's not Podcast even at bookriot.com. If you want something for your mom, your dad, a grad, yourself, yourself. anybody else, someone's having a birthday, you, you, you've got a very smart dog. We'll, we'll do, you know, <laughs> something like that. We'll take all comers for recommendation requests, one of our favorite times of year. Um, so shoot us those emails. We will answer. We'll prioritize them in the answer in which they were received, if that's another um, uh, motivational um, reason to get them in early. Uh, keep them to a couple. We've had some of late where it's like, and I want this one, uh, this one. We'll do a couple, but your whole family's maybe a little much um, at this point. Let, make some room for the, the paying customers, as they say. All right. I think that'll do it. Podcast at bookriot.com. Bookriot.com slash listen. We will talk to you next time. Have a good one.